Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Well, it's been a week. Like, part of it is I am I'm in the process of moving. Yeah. That is not fun. It uh-huh. is really not fun. I'm not prepared for this. It's I'm not it's just not good. Yeah. But- yeah. Here in the for people that don't know, every September 1st in the Boston area is like a big game of musical chairs. Mm-hmm. Everyone scrambles around mm-hmm. trying to use the same seven trucks just like everyone's all millennials are trying to use the same Netflix accounts. It's just it's a big mess. Mm-hmm. Big mess. Gosh, but like you said, it's been a week between this whole moving business and also just this year of a week we've had in Mormonism. Like, let's just go mm, right mm-hmm, into it. Mm-hmm. Education week, bruh. Um, Elder Holland had some words, did he not? Yeah. I don't even know where I want to start with this, but basically he started with this kind of like folksy, uh, painting this folksy picture of, you know, how wonderful BYU is, how much of a uh, formative place that was for him, how much of a formative place it was for other people. It's educational and spiritual rewards for for the people uh, that have gone there or who have taught there, himself included, talked about it being the greatest university mm-hmm. anywhere around. Like, it it seemed like it was going to be a nice talk at the outset. And then the whole thing just kind of goes left. And it's that part that went left that kind of has social media ablaze right now. Um, I heard about this almost as soon as it happened. and um, mm, Me too. Yeah. So just a lot was happening in these few paragraphs that, uh, you know, was a part of this tangent that Elder Holland went off on with regard to people in the LGBTQ community. Where where do you want to start with this, Derek? Well, I want to start with, well, I'm going to jump into the, to the DNC because otherwise I won't ever get there. (laughs) I'm going to start with DNC 94 verse four. It says, verily I say unto you that it shall be built 55 by 65 feet in the width thereof and in the length thereof in the inner court. And this, so this is the um, instructions for the building of the Kirtland temple, which we had back in DNC 88, Uh where we were supposed to have a home for the school of the prophets, a house of learning, a house of prayer, a house of order, all these other things. Yeah. Um, to study by learning and also by faith. So we've got this blending or marriage of actual academic work plus the spiritual wisdom, uh, and we're better with both than with neither. Right? Uh-huh. And that that's my position, and that's actually the position of Elder Neil Maxwell, who gets quoted later in the talk. Mm-hmm. So, but what I want to say is, why am I focusing on this, like, down to the 55 by 65 feet? Yes, I got that question, too. Where you want to go with this, Derek? Where I'm going with this is we know more about the nitty-gritty details of a building than we do about the plan of salvation for queer people. Mm Mm-hmm. And if we can get this amount of specificity and detail, why not, instead of shedding tears, just go to the Lord and insist on, we need more light and knowledge. Mm-hmm. Because all they claim, and I think this is why, why Elder Holland is so stuck, is he knows in his head the two things, no gay marriage and no gay sex. And 
no identifying or living as the gender other than you were assigned at birth. Other than those things, they have no clue what to do. They have Mm -hmm. no clue about what the afterlife will look for us, if and how we will get a chance, like whether we will be changed, whether we should marry a woman, whether we should stay celibate. Basically, any answer they can come up with really is non-workable in terms of the doctrine or in terms of our actual lives. Mm -hmm. So they throw up their hands and don't know what to do and they're stuck. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you claim to be uh, able to receive revelation, and if we can get the details 55 by 65 feet, right? Right. Why can't we go to a loving God who is eager to give us these details and prepare ourselves for new answers? Now, theoretically, right, these, these new answers might not be the answers I like, Mm-hmm. Right, that theoretically could happen. I don't think it will because I know the Lord and what's going on. But theoretically, from Holland's perspective, they should be able to go and get more helpful uh, answers. And so mm-hmm. that's um, my jumping off. But also, the jumping off gets back to the entire purpose of the Kirtland Temple because in these sections ninety four through ninety seven, we're continuing uh, this whole study. By learning and by faith, the school of the prophets, the temple, a house of learning, a way of integrating. I'm not even going to call it worldly knowledge, right? Because people talk about integrating worldly knowledge with faith. But here's the thing. There's no such thing as worldly knowledge or worldly truth. Because if there's something that's true, if there's something that's actual knowledge, it is of God. It is Mm -hmm. spiritual. Mm -hmm. Like we do not have this dichotomy where we... Where, where, where it's dualistic, where we've got actual uh, earthly or worldly knowledge. No, if something's right. true, right. if we discover it through the means that God has given us, using the tools and the brains that God has given us, mm-hmm. it is absolutely fair game as part of the gospel. And I think that mm-hmm. is the heart of what BYU could do very well, and it's also the heart of why people are so scared about the direction BYU is going. Because we're gaining more knowledge. We're gaining gaining more knowledge. And some people are, um, I think a lot of it goes back to this donor, these donor letters or these parent letters. Like Uh people send their kids off to BYU and they actually learn facts (laughs) and they don't like the facts and then they complain. It's it's the, I want to speak to the manager thing that, that these Karens do. I shouldn't say that, right? Can I say that? I don't see why not. <laughs> well, anyway, there's these people like they don't get their way and they want to complain to the manager. And so they mm-hmm. they have um, these letters to Holland and then Holland reads them and he gets fired up. Like mm-hmm. he gets spooked by these letters about what's been what's being taught at BYU mm-hmm. and not also what's being taught, but also cultural change. Yeah. So let me just stop right there. And, and what were your thoughts about? Where to begin? Well, first of all, just I want to acknowledge that what you just said barely echoes back to what we've spoken about. I think it was two weeks ago when we talked about how comprehensive the gospel is uh, in terms of, you know, encompassing things in heaven, things in the earth, things under it, things as a, you know, the complex, the perplexities, I think it said of, you know, the perplexities of the earth. Just there's the gospel encompasses just about everything you can think of. And as you said, like whatever means the Lord has given us to discern truth, those are of God and all truth should be 
valuable there. And to uh, further jump off to that last point you made, something that kind of like caught me off guard about uh, Holland's remarks is just him outing himself as somebody afraid of change. Like, as... Like, I was shocked to see such language coming out of Holland's mouth when he has been the guy who is... Like, I have a lot of respect for him as an educator, as an orator, and as someone who is simultaneously able to construct a cogent argument and do so in a poetic way. Like, that was just so jarring about these remarks that Holland made was because they weren't logical. They weren't poetic. They were just dangerous and mean and you know they, they they rang of you know i don't know just racist uncle at your thanksgiving dinner yeah. i was just like that that's not how i'm used to hearing holland you know he he went from calling for empathy and understanding for everyone while while naming or not specifically naming but you know kind of calling out maddie easton trying to let other lgbtq students know that they weren't alone like how do you call for empathy and understanding for everyone and then come for maddie easton just for trying to make people feel safer and better at byu Mm -hmm. like he talked about his experience it wasn't that pleasant at byu and it was like he says himself he was a very impressionable kid and he watched people he saw he knew people that ended up taking their own lives because right you know they were trying to live authentically and just didn't feel like they could do it and to like just hear um uh elder holland trying to you know basically complain about what maddie easton did when maddie easton did that to simply affirm this part of his identity that is divine and also let other people know that that part of their identity was okay was just uncharacteristically lacking compassion. And, you know, I just really didn't like that. But And he also would talk about the cruelty and unkindness that gay folks experience. And then in the context of that same conversation, use the imagery of carrying muskets to, you know, defend eternal principles. It, there was just a disturbing lack of self-awareness in Holland's talk. And I, like I said, I typically have a lot of respect for him as an, you know, as an, as a speaker and uh, as someone who's able to craft cogent arguments in such a poetic way. But what he produced at Education Week, what he produced just a few days ago, that that wasn't it. It was dangerous. It was gross. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear Christ in it. Yeah. You know, I heard an old man frustrated that the world he knows is changing. That's what I heard. He painted these folksy images of the school he went to, of the BYU he knows and loves, and painted himself mm-hmm. as someone mm-hmm. who was mm-hmm. who has poured over Uh, These particular issues affecting the LGBTQ community, saying he weeped and prayed with these people and wept again, you know, and then somehow he still doesn't know, like those experiences still didn't teach him how to move in queer spaces or talk about, you know, and talk to queer people. Like, what does that all of that mean if this is how you're going to speak about queer folks like it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me and yeah. that's that's the part i'm just really grappling with is just the fact that elder holland of all people made this kind of error like i'm not so much confused that somebody at in the upper echelons of the church said homophobic stuff i'm just i i didn't expect such a blatant sign of the church panicking to come so soon and to come in this way like elder holland yeah. 
acting the way that he did, saying these words that he said, like this is a signal pretty much to the rest of the church that they're like panicking over there. Like they see what's coming and they can't stop it. Mm -hmm. They know Mm -hmm. they can't stop Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't know, man, just that those are my initial feelings or what what I wanted to begin with. Yeah, and and that reminds me, uh, one of the most important analytical tools we have is crash theory. Mm-hmm. We have a clear example of option one thinking. Mm-hmm. Holland is 100% committed to option one. Mm-hmm. Like he sees the crash, he denies the, the crash, right? right? And the crash is the BYU that he know and love isn't there anymore, yeah. or it might not be. And that's that's a crash, but he's going to stubbornly and artificially retain something that isn't even sustainable in the long run. Let's go back to this uh, analogy. Well, let me, I don't know where I want to talk. Well, let me just talk a little bit about the valedictory address. First of all, okay. we talked about this two years ago on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm not the, someone, people have been saying this. I don't know who first said this, but the point of the these type of addresses the valedictorian is supposed to build rapport with the audience and make personal connections and connect with the audience and inspire them and motivate them. And he did that really well. It's It wasn't an artificial just shoving this, this gay thing in. That was essential to the best craft of the genre of the the talk that he's giving. Mm-hmm. And to call it commandeering is extremely... Yeah. Um, inappropriate he had the support of the faculty he had the support of the student body look at how people cheered Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what they're afraid of the leaders they realize oh no our our faculty our staff and our students aren't cracking down as hard as they should on Mm -hmm. on vulnerable queer people so we need to put a little fire under them so they'll fire the muskets this is what those parents and those donors were probably writing in those letters to elder holland just They were saying, oh my gosh, my kids are so scared and confused of going to this institution where gay people actually feel welcome. Like, what is this? Yeah, and so Holland was spooked by these letters. I also think he was very much influenced by conversations with Oakes and Nelson, whom he quoted. Uh You can tell his influence is here. It's very transparent. He was very reactive in this talk. He's very emotional. He's very, um, didn't think through the whole implications of all this. Right. He's acting out of basically a reflex, and Mm -hmm. that's not the way the Lord wants our leaders to work. We need to have balanced, dignified people who will do the -hmm. the hard work. And let me just back up and say, I love Ah, Elder Holland. I love Elder Holland. Like, he's he's a great guy. If, If you're listening, I'm not saying you're a bad guy. Like, good guys make mistakes. Absolutely. All all, what is it? All fall short of the glory of God. Exactly. Right. And and the thing is, I make mis- I've I've made mistakes. I've made big mistakes too. So my mm-hmm. problem is that I'm not saying, oh no, Elder Holland's making mistakes. The 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 thing is is accountability. Like yeah. we're not debating whether he's infallible or not. He right. he and I are gonna make big mistakes. Mm-hmm. But he does not hold himself out to be accountable and I think that's because his handlers won't let him. Mm. Right? There's an entire structure in there to preserve the reputation of the general authorities that won't let him come out and say, you know what, maybe I made a mistake. They don't let them do that. Mm-hmm. And our culture doesn't let them do that. And I hold myself out to be accountable. Like, I am not going to do everything right by 
black folks or women or trans folks or or um, disabled folks but at least I, I at least I hope that if I'm confronted with it I will change and and make reparations and mm. and do the right thing from then on and mm. I've done that in the past and I hope that I will continue to do that in the future mm. but let's talk about this musket business because when people <laughs> are angry they make bad choices and here yeah. I think Elder Holland made a bad choice in using a highly, highly inappropriate analogy uh, with with gun violence used against those who are defending LGBTQ equality. Now, there's a problem with it. Now, first of all, a lot of people are trying to defend it by saying, oh, no, it's just a metaphor. But there's a problem. As a pacifist, as someone who is committed to nonviolence, I really think that using violent imagery in the service of goodness, well, first of all, this wasn't even in the service of goodness. It was in the mm-hmm. services of homophobia. But even when it's good, I really think we should shy away from violent imagery when we, uh, when we do our gospel work. But let's talk about this. I, I wanna fill in some of the background so I'm going to be quoting, this, this is ironic, but I'm quoting from Holland, who's quoting from Oaks, who's quoting from Elder Maxwell. And here's what Elder Maxwell originally said. Alrighty. So I'm quoting Holland, who's quoting Oaks, who's quoting Maxwell. In a way, Latter-day Saint scholars at BYU and elsewhere are a little bit like the builders of the temple in Nauvoo who worked with a trowel in one hand and a musket in the other. Today, scholars building the temple of learning must also pause on occasion to defend the kingdom. I personally think this is one of the reasons the Lord established and maintains this university. The dual role of builder and defender is unique and ongoing. I'm grateful we have scholars today who can handle, as it were, both trowels and muskets. Close quote. So that is all that Holland quoted. But I went back to Maxwell's original talk and looked at the very next line. Okay, so let me... Let me read it from Elder uh, Neil L. Maxwell's talk. This is Blending Research and Revelation. Notice it doesn't say overcoming research by artificially propping up and empowering revelation to overcome the research. No, mm-hmm. we're blending this. And I think many implications of Elder Holland's talk would be to use revelation, to use doctrine, to stamp out actual academic work. And that is not what Maxwell was saying. Mm-hmm. He didn't say, drop the trowel and use the musket. He said, use them both in both hands. He's not using the musket against the trowel. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so in this talk, Blending Research and Revelation, also given at BYU, so, so Maxwell says, I am grateful we have scholars today who can handle, as it were, both trowels and muskets. The very next sentence is, our scholars' work must be respectable and it must be effective over the long haul. See, it's right here. <laughs> Derek's holding like, it up. <laughs> our scholars' work must be respectable and it must be effective over the long haul. Right. If you omit that, you really miss the point because uh-huh. right now, if you follow along where people are wanting Oaks, Oaks's talk and Holland's talk to go, 
it's going to lead to a BYU that's not respectable and it's not sustainable in the long run. Yeah. You know, yeah. I absolutely have no doubt that in 40 years from now, the church will officially disavow and disavow, disown this particular talk. That will mm-hmm. go down as, whoops, he, was, he wasn't speaking as an apostle. This was his private opinion. Mm-hmm. He, he was... That was that was his private opinion, and that was forty years ago, and now we've moved on. Mm-hmm. Like this will be disavowed. I'm disavowing it now, right? <laughs> I and the future will definitely validate me on this. So let's talk about this this um, analogy here in Maxwell. Now, my view is that it probably goes back to the account of the building of the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter four. <laughs> I'm so glad you're going here. Okay. I literally just read this last week. Okay. Yeah. So what happened is in in Neof, let me just back up and say, oh, I'm going to do a lot of backing up. <laughs> I need one of those beepers because yeah. I'll be backing up. Where are we going now? I'm going to back up and say, here's what happened. We've got, after the Babylonian captivity of the Israelites, we end up having them deported to Babylon. Then... The Neo-Babylonian Empire gets overthrown by the Persians, the Achaemenid Empire, and Cyrus starts the process of repatriating the Israelites back mm-hmm. to uh, back to the Holy Land. And a few generations later, Artaxerxes is the Persian king here, and Nehemiah. Okay, let's talk about Nehemiah. He wasn't a prophet. He was not sent by God to do anything. He was d- didn't even claim to. He was just some random dude that gets radicalized in a religious nationalism about re- going back to Jerusalem. So here he is in Persia, and he asks the king, saying, let me go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's it. This was not a commandment of God to rebuild the walls. It was not a prophet of God. This was some radicalized nationalist coming back in and saying, we got to build these things. Now, from the standpoint of the Persians, yes, I mean, you do have to, you do owe reparations. Even though you weren't the ones that overtook Israel, you actually need to give them back their stuff. Uh But we're going to put that aside and talk about what Nehemiah did. So Nehemiah is absolutely working from a position of fear because when he's rebuilding the walls, the neighboring peoples, the Samaritans and the Ammonites are wanting to attack. And so that is why they feel compelled out of fear and out of threat to build the wall with a weapon in one hand and the trowel in the other. And that's exactly what Nehemiah 4 says. What am I doing with all this? We don't have to take Nehemiah as an example of what we need to do. Because you know what? Did that wall actually work? (laughs) No. (laughs) Like, um, yes, they finished the wall. They completed the wall. But it did not lead to lasting peace. Mm -hmm. It did not lead to lasting peace in Jerusalem. You ended up being taken over by Alexander the Great after the Persians were done. Then you get, uh, well, then you have the uh, Maccabean revolt, but then you get overtaken by Rome. And and then you get overtaken by Rome again. And then Jerusalem completely falls. Like what Nehemiah did of building a wall and using violent um, means 
to secure peace will never, ever, ever work. So that's what I want to say about, uh, and you know right-wingers are going to love this some Nehemiah, right? Because it's all about building a wall to keep out the Mexicans. And that's, <laughs> that's not even what it was. But So people are trying to say, well, look, if you look at the analogy, it's completely defensive, right? And yeah, in Nehemiah, it was defensive, and in Maxwell, and in, in Holland, it's defensive. But my problem is, why are you thinking that LGBTs, rather than being a shared part of the same body, mm-hmm. you see them as a foreign enemy? Like, the reason mm-hmm. I don't attack my foot is because we're all connected. Mm-hmm. What Holland is asking us, asking people to do is take up muskets against fellow members of the body of Christ that are doing the best they can with what they know. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, maybe it is metaphorical muskets, but it's still not acceptable in part because we still today face hate crimes and we mm-hmm. still face the risk of being told that there's no place for us in this world mm-hmm. or the next, mm-hmm. and many LGBT folks soon have the desire to turn the musket against themselves. Mm-hmm. You just can't go there, right. right? Even if it is metaphorical, it's still violent. Right, it is still not okay. It is not okay the way Holland threw Matt Easton under the bus. Um, we I haven't even really gotten into the rest of... of oh. You talk for a while because I'm going to have more to say. <laughs> well, it's fine. Like, you know, basically the only thing. Um, I wanted to take a moment to address a feeling that I think is um, present, you know, in our community at the moment. A few of my friends have, uh, and, you know, perhaps a couple of our listeners as well. But a few of my friends have uh, listened, have reached out to me to let me know that they have contemplated removing their names from the church because Holland's words made our church a more hostile place toward queer people. And I don't fault any queer person who has to protect their own spiritual and emotional uh, well-being and perhaps physical as well. We just saw this week... um, Mere days after Holland gave his talk, we saw this dude on BYU campus, somebody who looks like, uh, I, I don't know, Aaron Carter post his Disney eminence, cosplaying a Hitler youth, dumping what I presume to be a jug of his straight tears on all these chalk sidewalk drawings and uh, words of affirmation for the LGBTQ community. While while shouting slurs. Oh, and gosh, like, don't even get me into BYU's response to this event. Because, you know, as far as I know, at least as of this recording, that young man has not been expelled yet. And it is against the honor code to basically be homophobic. But at the same time, it's just like, I can't take these condemnations of such blatant, hateful homophobia seriously from a university that still oppresses gay people. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. it rings hollow. And until, they got to at least expel that boy, but until they change their policy, until the church changes their policy, I can't really take seriously BYU's affirmation of their so-called rule of not being prejudiced. I'm just like, yo. But that is codified into your institution. But like, anyway, I, I digress. Like, I just wanted to point out that, again... Even though the language that Holland used 
may have been metaphorical, and I don't think he was, I don't think he intended people to be physically violent, I still think that he enabled that. At the very least, he enabled it, but I think he may have emboldened some people Mm, as well mm, mm, mm. to be spiritually, emotionally, and perhaps even physically abusive to members of the LGBTQ community. And that, to me, is probably the biggest issue. That said, I still think that Elder Holland, even though that he didn't give uh, compassion, even though he didn't provide the empathy he spoke of, I think he still... Uh, deserves grace. I think he still deserves compassion. But as you said, he also deserves to be held accountable. And I don't have a problem with most of what people have had to say about Holland this week, considering the position that Elder Holland occupies and considering the position that most LGBTQ folks occupy. Elder Holland has to be held accountable. I think that is our Christian duty. The purest expression of our faith to Hold Elder Holland accountable to principles of Christianity. It's been said many times on social media this week. Jesus had nothing to say about LGBTQ folks. Like, he never said anything condemning gay people, but he said a lot about justice, equity, and compassion. That's the Jesus we worship. That's the Jesus we should be emulating right now. That's the Jesus I want to emulate. So I'm going to hold Elder Holland accountable for this stuff. And also, I want to give him some grace because, like, again, we've said this already, but, like, he's not infallible, and I've never expected him to be perfect. I never, like, that's never been the pattern. Nobody, none of the Lord's anointed have ever been perfect. Not in the latter days, not in the ancient days. The original apostles have shown themselves on multiple occasions to be prideful, greedy, Mm -hmm. faithless, uh, impetuous, racist and like sometimes downright clueless about the divine even as the divine walked among them i'm willing to give elder holland some grace but like also hold this man accountable because that's what being christian means like we hold other disciples of christ accountable to the principles of christ that we claim to follow this is what paul did to peter in antioch because peter being racist himself in antioch needed to be held accountable and what peter sorry what paul used to hold that man accountable was not his authority it was not his rank it was the law of christ that is Mm -hmm. all he needed Mm -hmm. that is all Mm -hmm. that's all we need so like I'm going to say one more thing may ruffle some feathers of our listeners, but like, I know that there's some of y'all who are listening to this podcast right now who just listen to the podcast and you think your work is done. You know, a lot of would be allies, I feel like need to understand that it's not enough to, you know, add a rainbow overlay to your social media profiles. It's not enough to lament on social media. It's not enough to listen to this podcast. It's not like... Y'all actually need to get out there and actually say things. You got to do things. You have to, you have to put something on the line at this point. Like being an ally should be costly. Mm -hmm. It should Mm -hmm. be costly. Mm -hmm. Being a disciple of Christ right now should be costly. It should be difficult in your ward. I mean, I don't know the wards that you exist in, but like, When you go to church this, okay, like when this drops, it's already going to be Monday, but I'm giving a talk tomorrow in church. Mm -hmm. I'm giving a talk tomorrow in church. I didn't know what I was going to talk about until this week. Mm -hmm. Guess what I'm talking about? Holland. And I, because I better be there for that. Then you're going to be there for that because I have to, we can't just go to church tomorrow and pretend that this didn't happen and pretend that this doesn't need to be addressed. Yeah. Like, yeah, we have to as Christians 
We have to hold each other accountable and we have to live into the responsibility to affirm the marginalized. Like the Jesus that we worship affirmed, I think I said this on social media, but the Jesus we worship, he affirmed the marginalized, identified so hard with them that he declared that however we treat them is basically our treatment of him. This Jesus also welcomed in the poor, the taxpayer, the widowed, the you know, the the women, the sex worker, like he included mm-hmm. all of these people. That's mm-hmm. that's the Jesus we worship. Mm-hmm. That's the Jesus we ought to emulate. Last week, or I guess this week in the Come Follow mm-hmm. Me lesson, we talked about emulation as a form of worship. That's what DNC section, Doctrine and Covenant section 93 teaches us. Emulation of Christ is a form of worship. If we're not emulating Christ, we're not worshiping him. Let me just read the scripture real quick because yeah. this is important. This is 93, uh, sorry, section 93, uh, verse 19. I give unto you these sayings. And by the way, these are the sayings about light, truth, and knowledge that you may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship, that you may come unto the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness. And then he goes on to say, how to worship. If you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore, I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. And then he goes on talking about how receiving light, truth, and knowledge is how we go from grace to grace. And going from grace to grace is how we worship. Emulation of Christ is worship, family. Mm -hmm. Like that is what we got to do right now. We got to emulate Christ. And Christ, he would hold these folks accountable. He would side with the marginalized. That is, sorry, I've I've said the same thing like three times now. Yeah, and I mean like... This is gonna be, you know how on those infomercials they come out and say, but wait, there's more. There is more. I there's got more always too. more. Like yes, I, I'm still, and I'm sorry, everyone. I didn't really get a chance to prepare. Otherwise, I would have had like a very linear presentation. <laughs> I've gone through everything in a very orderly order, uh-huh. but I didn't do that. So this is kind of all over the place, and I'm still thinking about the impact at BYU because what he's trying to do is stifle the actual academic fields. And by stifling the actual academic fields, he is preventing the students at BYU from getting this light, truth, Mm -hmm. and knowledge. And again, to refer back to last week's lesson, this is section 93 again, verse 36 and 37, glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. And then he goes on to say, light and truth are forsake that evil one right and elder holland is trying to get people to forsake light and truth and stifling their academic development and this is bad and i mean it's not just <laughs> that is bad it's so lightly Derek. It, i mean this, I, this is bad yes it's bad Derek. i mean it's i was about to say it's of course it's bad yes. for the, the queer people but it's actually bad for, for everyone yes anyone who has byu on their resume anyone okay. who graduates <laughs> from from BYU. What's so funny? I mean, I graduated from BYU. That's Oops. on my resume. Whoops. Like, well, you're going to have something better on your resume in a couple of years. Yes, I am. Yes, so. I am. And thankfully, <laughs> I got accepted. So, like, too, I don't know. I, I already got members of my cohort that are listening to me right now and probably one of my deans. Thank you for accepting me. It's too late. You can't, you can't say no to me now. Right. I'm already on the way. So, the, the thing, though, is, like, if BYU gets the reputation of of shortchanging actual scholarship and academic rigor yeah. to pervert it in the direction of a dogmatic and doctrinaire fundamentalism. I don't mean the 
like the polygamy fundamental. Right, right, I mean right. the 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 option one not even caring about the truth that will devalue everyone's BYU degree. It will devalue um, BYU people in the workplace, in the political world, or or in the whatever, trying to get into graduate school or to get jobs. I, there's a lot of people that if BYU shows up on your resume, toss it in the trash. Not not just because BYU is academically suspect, but also yeah. because they don't want it, the liability of a racist or a homophobe were in the workplace. Mm-hmm. You will mm-hmm. get in big trouble if you have a racist or homophobe mm-hmm. in your workplace. And if mm-hmm. BYU comes across the, the list, like it literally is named after a racist, right? Ooh. So, Ooh. <laughs> oh, uh, it hurts, Derek. It hurts. <laughs> Well, I'm. I didn't go to BYU. No, I was you did not. blessed. I was. Uh, I was wise. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I. I think there. I. I shouldn't do that because there are good scholars at BYU, and that's exactly why he's so frustrated and threatened. There's, and this gets back to the silver lining part. And there's two ways of talking about a silver lining. There's the gaslighting way of saying, oh, no, it's not as bad as you think. It's not as bad. Like that's not what I'm doing. There's a silver lining that it on my own terms gives hope and empowerment to queer people and it's this if you read between the lines of what holland's talking about what we're doing is working it's working it's working Mm -hmm. and the things that holland is telling us not to do we need to do it more because that's what's working that's what's getting to them it is getting to them Mm -hmm. like seeing someone boldly come out in in the commencement uh speech is powerful coming mm-hmm. out is one of the most powerful powerful tools we mm-hmm. have for social change mm-hmm. another thing these demonstrations like lighting up the y on the mountain in rainbow colors yep that is powerful yep that got in national and maybe worldwide news mm-hmm. that gets places and i think the church moves when it becomes a public media issue mm-hmm. right like writing a letter to your stake president probably just goes in i don't even know where those letters go but but they don't do anything as far <laughs> as i know um in terms of changing sub structures in salt lake mm-hmm. but things like these demonstrations parades flag waving like he literally complains about, about that flag waving yes yes and flag waves and parades, I think he complains he about. He complains about that. And, and how so people com- are confused so, about So these. he's signaling to us what actually gets their attention. Uh-huh. And so let's, let's, so we have, and yes, I think he's frustrated and he feels like he's losing control, mm-hmm. which is good for us. Great Because for us, that yes. means it's working. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is working. So that's where, where I want to go. I want to go back to actually analyzing some more of his speech and then we're going to be here for like three hours and like <laughs> that might not, not be Let's a joke go. and so here's the right after the um quotation from maxwell about the um trowels and muskets holland immediately quotes from elder oaks quote then elder oaks said challengingly i would like to hear a little more musket fire from this temple of learning close quote it's, I'm closing Elder Oaks's quote, and now I'm finishing uh, Holland. He said this in a way that could have applied to a host of topics in various departments, but the one he, meaning Oaks, specifically yeah. mentioned was the doctrine of the family in defending marriage as the union of a man and woman. 
So immediately after talking about this musket business, Holland quotes Oakes explicitly asking for musket fire against those who would defend LGBT equality. Like that is that is absolutely unacceptable for a prophet, for an apostle, for a sixth grader. Like I have mm-hmm. sixth graders. I mean, I know sixth graders who have better sense than this. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that, that's a problem because what we've got here is, you know how Aaron built a golden calf? He yeah. thought he was doing the right thing. Yeah. Right here, Holland's building a golden calf. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, Aaron was one of the most senior leaders of God's people and whipped people up into building this calf and it was so popular and it was absolutely wrong. Using violence against LGBTs, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, is not okay. I I did not give Elder Holland permission to use gun violence against me. Hmm. And um, this reminds me, I hate to say it reminds me of Trump, but look at Trump and the uh, January 16th insurrection. Like Trump whipped people into doing weird things and, and I uh, unpredictable. I mean, people on the right can be unpredictable. Like we don't know if someone will literally take a musket to a pride parade. Right. Because that is what Holland's asking for. Mm-hmm. Now Holland is going to say, no, I didn't mean it literally, but what's stopping people from taking it literally it's not their goodwill, right? Mm-hmm. We know that people, when they're desperate, will do things like this. Mm-hmm. So let's an, let's analyze some more. Um, we hope it isn't a surprise to you that your trustees are not deaf or blind to the feelings that swirl around marriage and the whole same-sex topic on campus. Pause. First of all, Holland uses ableist imagery here by using deafness and blindness as stand-ins for a moral failing. And that's that's not okay. That is totally not okay. But anyway, I really think they are insensitive to, um, to the issues. They don't understand. He claims to have spent lots and lots of time crying about it. Yeah. You know, if you would have actually done work to change, you would have had less crying to do. Because there wouldn't have been anything to cry about if you fix it, right? <laughs> I don't want people to have pity for me and cry for me. Like if you're standing on my toe and I tell you you're standing on my toe and then you say, oh, I'm so sorry how about how your toe is feeling. Yeah, I don't need to hear that. I just need you to move off my toe. Mm-hmm. And then you don't, I'm not asking you to cry about the toe. Right. But if you perpetuate the toe stomping, especially after you know, and then you cry about it, like, I don't believe those tears when Mm -hmm. it is in your power to actually do something about it. Mm -hmm. But he is so committed to option one thinking that he doesn't seem to be open to anything else, which is why he feels stuck and why he's lashing out this way. Mm -hmm. So we've already talked about this, but it says, if a student commandeers a graduation podium intended to represent everyone getting diplomas in order to announce his personal sexual orientation, what might another speaker feel free to announce the next year until eventually anything goes? Okay. Close quote. There's there's like five different yeah. problems with this. First of all, it wasn't commandeering. 
It was absolutely in line with what every straight person does every day. He earned that spot as well. He earned that spot, and he had permission from his authority, from his dean or whoever it was. His talk was screened. It was, and I think that's that's what's mad. Holland isn't mad just at Matt Easton. He's mad at the people who approved it, and he's probably more mad at the people who approved it. But he didn't name them. Right. So He went after Matt. He went after Matt. But anyway, so there's that. First of all... There's, there's, first of all, okay. There is a sense in which a gay person speaking their truth does represent everyone because then that's a model of everyone. You, you know, you have to find and replace or you have to substitute your own thing. But there's a sense in which it is generalizable. He is representing everything. He's representing the hard work of everyone going through whatever struggles they went through and coming out successfully. That is inspiring and absolutely valid. Like mm-hmm. to complain that a gay person doesn't represent everyone is to say that gay people that there's something different about being gay, that it's not the same as everyone else and that's like so there's a circular problem here. Why wouldn't you know love is love. Um I think he just puts gays in a different category and gay love in a different category so he doesn't see that as representative of a basic human life. It totally is just a basic human life. And so there's there's a big problem there. The other big problem is, like, you know, Elder Holland, quite hypocritically in his own talks, talks about his wife and kids. Mm-hmm. Like, he mentions... Stop putting your heterosexuality in my face. Like, like he talks about it. Like, there is no one, no valedictorian who mentioned his, uh, his wife or her husband, or um, or their plan to eventually marry a spouse or or dating people. You know, none of that would have registered as commandeering. The only reason it's seen as commandeering is because of this this interpretation that gets put on it and that interpretation comes out of homophobia straight out of homophobia <gasps> straight out of homophobia that's i'm going to start using that more you want me to make a shirt mm, no all right no. well maybe but anyway so this comes straight out of homophobia let's talk about a fire alarm okay a water sprinkler is called that because it produces water right it it delivers water a fire alarm does not produce or deliver fire it lets you know that there's already a fire but it does not cause the fire so when he's talking about divisiveness and how this was divisive it's not divisive any any more than a fire alarm is fire fireable firing whatever right what Matt w- said would have not been controversial at all in any context where there's no homophobia mm-hmm it inherently is not divisive. When I right. come out as gay, it is not inherently divisive. The only way it becomes divisive is in the context of homophobia, and the mm. homophobia is the actual divisiveness. Mm. Like, I'm not out to uh, to get rid of straight people. I'm fine with straight people. You can be straight if you want. Like, I don't care. Go ahead. Like, I support your straightness. Like, mm-hmm. you... Like... Uh, so it's not divisive for me to be gay because my gayness is inclusive of straight people. Like, if you're gay, you're gay. If you're straight, you're straight. It's the reverse that's divisive. So it is completely disingenuous for Holland to characterize the parades or the coming out or the why. Or He didn't mention the why, but he clearly knows about it. Right. 
Here's some other things. He says, for example, we have to be careful that love and empathy do not get interpreted as condoning and Bro. advocacy. Sorry, I talked over that. Oh, that. Say it again. Yeah. Let me. For example, we have to be careful that love and empathy do not get interpreted as condoning and advocacy. Let's talk about this right here because that's not Christ-like at all. Let's mm-hmm. go back to, we've talked about this on the podcast before, John 8 and the woman who was left alone with Jesus. What happens is she was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. And we've got a split between what Jesus does publicly and what he does privately when no one's around. Publicly, he lets her off the hook. Mm -hmm. Publicly, he saves her life. Mm -hmm. Publicly, he does not condemn her. Publicly, he does not even reprove her sin. Publicly, everyone that was there, what they see is Jesus telling everyone let the one without sin cast the first stone, and by that means, he gets everyone to leave. Mm-hmm. That's all everyone knows. No one knows what he actually says to her in private is where he says, um, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Now, yes, he does say go and sin no more, but he says that privately, leaving everyone in the universe with the public perception that he was lax on adultery that he was condoning or advocating right they never heard him once condemn her sin Mm -hmm. right and jesus does not condemn her to death and he even doesn't condemn the past sin he's just talking about the future he's just saying don't sin in the future Mm -hmm. so jesus is totally fine doing what holland is not totally fine doing okay Let's see. Let's talk about this. Christ never once withheld his love from anyone, but he also never once said to anyone, because I love you, you are exempt from keeping my commandments. Now, there's a couple of problems with this. This is my least favorite sentence in the entire talk, I think. First of all, it's mischaracterizing what queer people are actually saying. Right. We are, I have never said any, to anyone, just let me sin because mm-hmm. it's easier. Like, mm-hmm. if you love me, you'll let me sin. I have never once defended the right of people to sin. Mm-hmm. What What's happening is we are in dispute about what actually the commandments are and whether there really is a commandment that somehow treats gay relationships differently from straight relationships. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, there is no commandment. I've looked for it. There is no <laughs> commandment that when you actually get down to the detail, spells out any essential difference between queer and straight relationships. Mm -hmm. So I am not asking for this straw man that Holland says, I've never said to anyone uh, that Christ's position is that because he loves us, he's going to let us cheat a little and slip or Mm -hmm. that it's okay. Second of all, there are cases where we are exempt from commandments. Individuals who are below the age of eight are exempt from baptism. Individuals uh, with cognitive disabilities who are not able to be accountable for their sins and who are not able to make covenants and understand what they're co- doing are not, they're exempt from baptism. Yes, mm-hmm. baptism is a commandment, but people are not required to run faster than they have strength. Now, I really should talk to folks in the disability community about how they feel about all that. Like, I don't know how that is taken, but at least the handbook policy the way it is now, there are exemptions for people who don't 
are not able to do certain commandments. The entire book of Galatians is basically doing what Holland said Christ never said, right? Paul in Galatians appeals to the Christ and says, here's something I got directly from Christ. Christ is telling you, you don't have to be circumcised. Mm -hmm. Circumcision is a Torah commandment. It is one of the biggies, right? And Paul flat out says, not only do you have to, not only do you not have to be circumcised, but you are prevented from being, you are commanded not to be circumcised in this context where it would be cooperating with your own oppression mm. and denying your identity. And he does this on the basis of Christ. So yeah, there are cases where what is perceived to be the commandment ends up Jesus saying, nope, you don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, Holland perceived that there's a commandment not to engage in gay relationships. But that's not what we're at. We're not asking for a little to let it slide and let us sin anyway. We're saying this is not sin. And if you mm-hmm. know us for half a second, you realize that our love is not wrong. Mm-hmm. And our relationships are not sin. They're not a sickness. They're not um, criminal. They're not whatever. And it was just even worse when he like cited his proximity to not just gay people, but to their tears and to their sadness about Mm, this whole issue to basically go back and double down on this attitude. Like he used queer people as a tool to further put them down. It's, um, I want to skip around to Romans chapter eight for a second, because what's undergirding this is this whole musket analogy again. He's trying to fire people up so that they will fire metaphorical muskets at the vulnerable queer people. And this is part of his musketing right here. Romans 8, verse 35. Here's Paul again. I, I love Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or musket, I would add? Mm-hmm. Nope. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor Holland, nor institutional churches, (laughs) nor um, muskets, nor the BYU water boy bro who dumped water on our rainbows, nor any of those things, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? That's my view of sword. Is sword, sword The sword will not be able to um, separate us from the love of God. And, and same with the musket. And you know... I think it's so weird that Holland quotes this musket piece and then somehow is able to, without any sense of of consistency, talk about the Isaiah and the swords being beaten into plowshares, right? Mm-hmm. He's saying, you know, one day we'll get there where we don't have to use swords, but we're going to mm-hmm. use swords now on the gay people. Mm-hmm. That's what he's saying. It's like, I hope we get there one day. And we, no, I think we need to live into the model of, of nonviolence and start inaugurating the eschatology that we have there in Isaiah and living into the future because 
the violence doesn't work long long term. Mm-hmm. Also, have the audacity to say that there are better ways to move, you know, crucially important goals in these very difficult matters. Ways that show this empathy and understanding for everyone, while maintaining loyalty to prophetic leadership and devotion to revealed doctrine. Just mm-hmm. before he says that, he doesn't really anything else but like the fact that he said that there are better ways and then went to this whole musket fire thing and then didn't really offer anything to the people he was attacking in terms of these better ways to move forward just speaks more to how do I just how are you going to say that there are better ways to move forward and then not even tell the community that you are talking down to or the one that you are condemning what these better ways are or not name, you know, what specifically we are to do to move forward. Like people do this in the church all the time. And like, it really gets under my skin when they will cite the family proclamation, talk about the law of chastity, condemn gay people all day long, condemn queer people all day long, and then never really talk about the implications of you know, those teachings never really talk about how those things affect those communities and not really talk about, not really take responsibility for that rhetoric on people. Never suggest anything that actually works. Like this is something that we don't do well in the church. We're not very good at taking responsibility for our homophobia. We're not very good at being accountable to our upholding of institutional structures that are oppressive. We like to talk about the commandments, but we don't like to talk about, and you know, I say commandments in scare quotes. We like to talk about those commandments. We don't like to talk about their consequences. We like mm-hmm. to talk about the family proclamation or the law of chastity. We, we don't like to talk about the fact that those things apply differently to members of marginalized communities, or in this particular case, applies differently to queer folks, just. Right, and I think that gets back to the mission of BYU is to be a community of learning and in mm-hmm. order to learn you have to become curious yeah and in order to um, understand marginalized folks and understand diversity you need to be curious I think diversity is a blessing for a learning community because that's how you actually learn is by engaging others mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like I really think that this this shoving the gays into BYU isn't like some just agenda piece. It actually is literally part of the mission of BYU Mm -hmm. to give everyone a better understanding of the world we live in. That's what the... It's part of the motto. Education (laughs) is supposed to be. And uh, and I love um, this. Rabbi Dania Ruttenberg said this on Twitter. We need diverse representation, not only so every kid can see themselves as the hero of the story, but so that every kid can understand that other kinds of kids are also the heroes of the story. So what Matt Easton was doing wasn't just for the queer kids in the room. It was for everyone in the room to learn mm-hmm. that queer kids can be heroes too. Mm-hmm. And that is is absolutely a generalizable to everyone. It's something for everyone there. Certainly. And... This mission of learning, I I don't know where this anti-intellectualism came from in the church. Well, uh, maybe I do know a little bit where it came okay. from, but I don't want to talk about it. All right. But what I do want to talk about is our 13th article of faith, which completely, along with studying out of the best books, learning by studying by faith, right? 
This is important. Here's the 13th article of faith. We believe all things. We hope all things. We have endured many things and hope to be able to endure all things. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. There is no worldly knowledge. There is no worldly truth. Do not ever put worldly knowledge in contrast or in competition with doctrine because if it is true it is fair game we're supposed mm-hmm. to seek after everything that's virtuous lovely or good report anything mm-hmm. that's true yes sir you know we believe in being honest and true like mm-hmm. we should be best positioned out of all the churches to mm-hmm. integrate a healthy spirituality with a rigorous academic approach to scholarship mm-hmm. like why don't and, and i think a lot of people at byu are doing a good job most certainly most of the faculty at byu are doing real scholarship which is why they're in trouble and which is why <laughs> um we know we're winning and why oaks fears losing and i think that's that's so sad that he that holland is approaching this whole thing out of fear and this and man out of, is an educator out of fear rather than curiosity and out of anxiety rather than than open-mindedness out of closedness rather than than a than a, than a fearless search for truth mm-hmm. and a result of that part of the body of Christ is now seen as an enemy which is completely why this whole musket thing like if you go back to the Nehemiah's temple those were actual enemies mm-hmm. right enemies of Israel if you go back to the building of the Nauvoo temple and you have the people around threatening the latter day saints as they were building the temple those were enemies we who are LGBT are not the enemies of the church we're the saviors of the church mm-hmm. like everything that's going to be go well uh, in the next next 40 years is going to be because of people on the margins. Women, mm-hmm. people of color, queer people, disabled folks. Absolutely. Like we, like, like straight white men have run this church for 200 years. Look where it's gotten us. <laughs> like we will get you out of every problem that you got yourself into, mm-hmm. right? Um, a lot of faith crisis things would be solved. A lot of other things would be solved. Our, our media problem, our reputation... All of that, a lot of this will be solved, and mm-hmm. we will be, uh, and people will be thanking us for what we've done 40 years from now, and they will be disavowing this speech by Holland. Mm-hmm. You know, Brene Brown, I saw this quote circulating online. She said, When the culture of an organization mandates that it is more important to protect the reputation of a system and those in power than it is, to protect the basic human dignity of individuals or communities, you can be certain that shame is systemic, money drives ethics, and accountability is dead. I want to say this one more time. Yes, sir. When the culture of an organization mandates that it is more important to protect the reputation of a system and those in power than it is to protect the basic human dignity of individuals or communities. You can be certain that shame is systemic, money drives ethics, and excess and accountability is dead. This is absolutely true of our church, right? And this makes Jesus cry. Hmm. These are real tears, not, not fake tears, not mm-hmm. crocodile tears. Mm-hmm. Holland is privileging the memory of a BYU that is going away. Mm-hmm. And maybe already is gone. And he's trying to artificially 
uh, used dominion over BYU to accomplish something that, that Christ would never smile upon. Mm. I hate to put you on the spot, but... It's fine. How, is there a time in your life where you would have listened to Elder Holland's speech and been on board with it? I mean, probably. At least the one moment I can remember the switch being flipped from me being a homophobe to moving into not being a homophobe, that happened while I was at BYU. Uh-huh. Um, so I know that there was a time when I was at BYU where I probably would have rocked with what Elder Holland was said. It was over a decade ago, but still, I think the point still stands mm-hmm. that uh, there is definitely a time. And this is another reason why I'm willing to give Elder Holland grace, because I know not too long ago, or at least yeah. you know, just over a decade ago, I was somebody who would have agreed, probably not to the point of committing any kind of physical violence or stuff like that against members of the LGBTQ community. But I would have paired. I would have quoted Elder Holland's talk. Mm-hmm. You know, what would have if you can like dial your brain back to that time? Yeah. What would have reached you? Like, what could have someone said to you when you were out there quoting his talk? What? Is there anything that someone could have said to you? Any any f- information they could have imparted? Any relationship they could have built? Like what would have gotten you to see through what Holland was doing here? Honestly, the slightest interrogation probably could have done it. But I was at BYU and nobody was interrogating me. No one was interrogating my faith. At least not at that point. I don't remember who all was in my life at this point. But the thing is... It honestly was these little interrogations that people were asking me to do, you know, somewhat at BYU, but also from faculty members and, you know, some of my own inner circle. I don't Mm -hmm. think it would have taken much for me to reconsider. I would have had a little bit, little bit of a crisis of some kind. I would have had a little bit of a breakdown at the Mm -hmm. result of the interrogation. But, you know, I honestly think that's all it would have taken at that point because that's really all it took for me to you know ultimately flip the switch into learning what it was to not be homophobic and feeling mm-hmm. that i was justified mm-hmm. in not mm-hmm. wanting to be homophobic yeah. if that makes sense yeah i think things like that are what i've called an epistemic wedge because if you give someone a full-on assault of their whole thing like if you give a carefully constructed debate and a counter argument for everything they will be threatened they will resist they will put up your defense their defenses but if you Mm -hmm. just put a little wedge just a little one that can just shift the entire room so that every so that it changes what a person in the room could reasonably know Mm That is very powerful. It's just a an epistemic wedge that you that can start prying open these doors. Mm-hmm. Let's talk more about the effects of this because we've analyzed. I think I'm pretty much done analyzing his talk for now. I mean, okay. the actual wording of his talk. Now I want to talk about the uh, some more of the effects. Okay, and why this is more painful to the LGBTQ community than it is, you know, like hearing from Oaks, for example. Mm. I think there's a couple of things in place. One is Holland might have been people people's last hope for the church. Like, uh-huh. well, we've got Holland here, and he's not as homophobic as the others. Holland and Ugdorf mm-hmm. are widely celebrated. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think some people have let their guard down, and some people have uh, just weren't expecting this from Holland. They're, they could expect it from Oaks or... Packer or maybe even Nelson 
um, but they they were they were not expecting this, no. and it came as a significant betrayal. Yeah, uh, someone that they thought had their back mm-hmm. didn't, mm-hmm. and um, just the, also the the fear of this whole musket analogy and what the right wingers might do. Mm-hmm. It also leads to big fears about the future of BYU of a coming crackdown. Like, right? what's it going to be like for like? Yeah, and this could change the entire culture of the church. Like, it makes people so uneasy to realize uh, that there's this uh, this whole scare, kind of like the red scare, and like trying to, you know, what I'm talking about. This is the type of stuff. They can really get out of hand quickly, and people now are afraid of perhaps going to to a pride events in Provo because yeah. there might be there might be there, there might be know? muskets, right? Yeah. And I think this signals. And the other thing is, this can this can also divide families because I think there's some people who maybe worked an un who through hard work developed a somewhat uneasy truce with their parents. Like maybe they could coexist, but now the, now the parents will hear this and realize, you know what, Holland's calling for the muskets, I gotta put my foot down and now make my kid's life miserable because mm-hmm. I've gotta stand for things. And if someone as nice as Holland is calling for it, that I, that I have to get on board with. I can't mm-hmm. ignore it like if yeah. it had come from Oaks or whatever. Yeah. There's just so many ways that, and this has split to some extent the queer community. I know, well, they might not even identify as queer, but there's some people who are same gender attracted who who now support all Holland, and friendships have been um, dashed, right? Right. Uh, do we want to talk about my um, pet dog theory? Why not? Let me try to make this real quick because I think it explains <laughs> two very important things. So people say, well, well, Holland is loving. He's he doesn't hate you, and he doesn't. He's not trying to be cruel, and he's sincere, and he's genuine. And like, like, yeah, we get that. That's not my problem with him. My problem with him is that he's a good person operating off of limited understanding and limited knowledge operating off of uh, significant biases that don't allow him to actually be open to what it is that we're asking for and what we're saying. So yeah, I'm totally fine with people saying that Holland is good and loving actually. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what that love looks like. So I developed this analogy a number of years ago to explain something that's been going on in that the reputation of, of LGBT folks, now I shouldn't really say LGBT, I should probably say gay, white men because it's most prominent with gay white men is that our image has now become instead of this this awful of scary evil violent wolf threat to the to the community now we're the fun gay uncle we're the we're the we're the seal who does tricks we're the life of the party right and people say i love gays like i have my best friends gay or my my uh, brother's gay and like we like having them at the whatevers and so i developed this uh thing called homo domestication to name how we've been rehabilitated from being wolves into being pet dogs it's actually quite sad because we are loved but we're loved the way people love their dogs and we're part of the family but we're part of the family in the way that dogs are part of the family Mm-hmm. And so there is a limitation to that love. If 
if we try to do anything that any other human would do, but we're seen as dogs, we will get smacked for it. And our behavior gets policed. Our, um, our access gets policed. Like if a dog jumps up at the table and starts eating the human food, you don't see a lot of love right there in the moment. And so it still is homophobic. It still is a straight supremacist. It is literally a straight supremacist. Mm -hmm. But it gets pleasantized. I don't even... What's the right word for this? It gets sanitized. It gets whitewashed. I don't even know what the word is. But mm -hmm. it, it it's able to disguise its looks. And now it's like, how can, how can you call me anti-gay when I laugh at all your jokes? Type of a thing. <laughs> like, no, there's people there that... there's a reason I don't laugh at Garrick's jokes. <laughs> no, there's people that yeah. will laugh at my jokes yeah. and hang out with me mm -hmm. and think that like, I don't deserve to have the life that they do. They yeah. literally, like, if I wanted to marry a man tomorrow, they would say, nope, you can't do that. And they're married with kids. Like, mm -hmm. I'm literally not doing anything that they didn't do. And they find me smart and talented and entertaining and all this other stuff. But when it comes down to it, I'm not allowed to eat human food. There's a couple of things. One is it explains why you can still be loving and then mistreat people. Mm-hmm. Two, it goes back to where where's the knowledge and control? Because parents uh, are, are, will castrate their dogs and cats mm -hmm. because they know what's best. Right. The dog and cat don't get to decide. They know what's best, so they can do anything they want to the, to the and they would never do that to their kids, right? Mm -hmm. So. It's partially because we are labeled in a way and not seen as fit for full human life that people are able to do that to us. And so this plays out again in the church where Holland knows best, right? Or the, the, the Quorum of the Twelve knows best, or the leaders know best, or the whatever is low best. What happened to the queers know best? Why, why shouldn't we have a say? We bear the cost for our decisions. Sometimes we're gonna make bad decisions. But why is it that straight people somehow magically get to decide for us what God's will is for us, what the commandments are for us? Like, I think if God is wanting to deal with queer people, he's going to talk to us and make the deal with us. Holland is trying to make these decisions for us and then use force and dominion and domination using all of his power that he has at BYU to to make it happen and then this uh, there's another sort of um result or implication of my my theory that we're pet dog we're treated as pet dogs and it explains why there's some dogs who cooperate and yeah there are going to be some gays who say look i like it here i'm happy and they like getting petted they like getting those little treats because they benefit greatly emotionally culturally, um, socially, from those little dog treats and getting petted and like they love that. And that actually may be better than their life would be outside the, the, the family. But they are still treated like dogs. They just like it. And it's really sad. This, there's gonna be a lot of people that are sad about what I'm saying, but it's true. You can find 
someone says, oh, he's okay with the discrimination in the church. He's not complaining. I mean, yeah, he is benefiting from his complicity. He's getting extra dog treats and extra pets and extra affection from the leaders. He's getting book deals and he's getting stuff that I'm not getting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not- That literally happened on our Instagram page a couple of days ago. I don't know if you saw- Right. Um, there's a lot, and I'm not going to name any names. And the reason why I'm not going to name any names is because some people could name me. People, there's people that would point to me and say, "Well, Derek is complicit," and I don't want to start that conversation. I think once people actually get to know me, they realize that I know exactly what I'm doing, and they support me once they know what I'm doing. But I see why some people think because I am happy in the church. Mm-hmm. I am, uh, I also don't feel the effects of homophobia because I'm immune to it, not because it's not there, but because through a, through a lot of privilege and a lot of work and a lot of other experiences, I just um, don't let these things get to me. And so I'm able to live and flow through the church fairly well without, without really any pain um, for, uh, for myself. I obviously have a lot of pain and sorrow for others who are suffering, and, I, and that pulls at me Mm -hmm. but for me i'm a human that's being treated like a dog and i want that to change all right i think that's a good place for us to uh end we mentioned what three maybe four passages of scripture today at least ones that relevant to the uh, come follow me i mean sorry if anybody's bothered by that but also i think everybody knows why we had to talk about this the way that we did and uh, hope that in moving forward after uh, the events of this week in Mormonism, we're able to just, I hope, do a better job of living into our faith as Christians. And uh, especially with those powerful words that you just shared, Derek, you know, create a space, create a world, create a community, a Zion, where we are not treating members of the lgbtq community or as you specifically highlighted gay men and everybody else as well like dogs before we wrap up want to remind you guys that dialogue a journal of mormon thought is proud to offer two new podcast features the first is dialogue heritage which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in lds history more generally The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at BTBLDS. Mm -hmm. And I have a surprise. Oh, word? What you got? So, in about a week from when you hear this, on Sunday evening, September 12th, we will be concluding our, uh, our journey through the book Queer Mormon Theology by Blair Ostler. And the special surprise is that Blair Ostler will be there and be leading a discussion on their book. Snaps. So I want everyone to, within this week, read the book. If you haven't already read it, I want you to read the book and then show up on Sunday evening, uh, 
to the discussion. It will be great. We will be able to ask them questions. I don't know how they're going to structure it. Maybe there will be some presentation, some opportunity for uh, feedback or Q&A, but it's going to be great. It's their book, so I'm letting them uh, celebrate with us uh, the journey that we've had reading their book. Wonderful. That is great news. Uh, is that also going to be the same weekend? Is there, like I know Affirmation is doing their conference. I believe it's that same weekend, but right. do they have it anything is, on Sunday? Yeah. I don't know what they have on Sunday. All um, right. The part of the conference that I know about is on Saturday, September the 11th. And just to remind people, I will be part of a panel on queer theology with Blair Osler and some others. And so come to that. There is a church leader training thing that's designed for local leaders to help them understand stuff. And mm -hmm. so if you want to help your local leaders do better, invite them to come. It's free and it's online, so mm. have them come. Wonderful, free. I think we got a friend of the pod who will also be uh, on a panel. Uh, Evan Smith, it looks like he's going to be up right. on the panel. Yeah, so that's, that's the, the church leader or mm. part of the church leader track. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, need Evan in there. Yeah. Oh, I, I should name that on Monday, I had an emergency debrief of the uh, Holland disaster mm -hmm. and over 100 people in pain showed up and i think i need to do more of those every time something happens in the lgbt world whether it's good or bad i need to have and host a debrief that same day so that we can process together so that we can sing our songs that we can name our joys and name our uh, tragedies and mm. so that we can be with one another because so often LGBTQ folks are isolated mm. yeah we're going to see what happens with, with Holland's talk and where this goes mm -hmm. also before we close want to give a special thanks to uh, Tamara Kemsley for editing the show David Doyle for editing the transcripts uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with social media and, uh, of course, the team doing the incredible work of uh, assembling our episode outlines. We got uh, Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and uh, Beth Johnson. These outlines also, uh, they include the Faithful Feminist episodes and the Holy Human episodes from that same week, so you can have a nice little one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me from the Margin study helps. Uh, the link to the outlines will be in the uh, show notes as well as the uh, drop-down menu on our website. Same thing goes for the mm -hmm. uh, transcripts. If there's nothing else... Thank you for joining us till we meet again next week. Yeah, thank you so much I uh, for listening. I realized that we may have went over, we, we may have gone over time this week, but uh, <laughs> that's what happens when, when there's stuff to say. Maybe we should change our name from Beyond the Block to Beyond the Clock. <laughs> mm. <laughs> we were doing so well, Derek. We were doing Beyond so well. Beyond the Clock, okay. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs>